0: Welcome to the Indoor AirPod, a show dedicated to our shared surroundings with industry heavyweights that are dedicated to designing, developing, manufacturing, and disrupting the status quo in order to make
1: all our spaces cleaner and safer for everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Indoor AirPod. I'm Gary Moody, the host. My guest today is William Bonflep. He's a director of architecture and engineering at Penn State University and also a prominent ASHRAE member. Also sitting in is JB Anderson, the producer of the indoor AirPod. Bill, it's great to have you. Really appreciate your time.
0: Glad to be with you, Gary.
1: Yeah, as you know, there's there's a lot to talk about uh, regarding IQ, and uh, what, what I'd like to do is maybe have you share some information to start with about your background. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're a mechanical engineer.
0: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so I, I started out studying mechanical engineering in Illinois back in the 1970s and 80s, and like a lot of mechanical engineers back in those days, we were talking a lot about of energy. And so my initial professional activities were mostly having to do with energy conservation in buildings. And that continued for a long time. I worked for the Corps of Engineers as a uh, civilian employee at the Construction Engineering Research Lab in uh, Champaign, Illinois for a few years. Then I was in professional practice for five years full-time, mostly doing large central utility systems, chilled water, hot water, steam, uh, thermal energy storage systems, And my uh, entree to indoor air quality didn't happen until I had been at Penn State for maybe four or five years. And I I got a a student come in who uh, wanted to get a PhD and he was uh, just sure that the thing to work on was um, protecting uh, people in buildings against airborne pathogens because there was gonna be another pandemic. And this was in like 1997. Uh, yeah, we're, we're talking about. And uh, around the same time, I went to some conferences um, internationally and heard people like uh, William Fisk from LBNL and Oli Seppinen from Finland talking about all of the lost productivity and, and health costs associated with where we were setting the bar on indoor air quality. And, and I started to to realize this was a really important subject and kind of uh, pivoted. So at Penn State, I've, I've continued to work on, on energy efficiency because it's important. But most of my emphasis for the last 20 years plus has been uh, on how do we uh, get better indoor air quality in buildings energy efficiently and, and cost effectively. I kind of bounced from, from um, uh, biosecurity shortly after the turn of the century because there were the anthrax mailings and omshin rikyo yeah. subway attack and that sort of thing and uh, turns out that what we were doing back then is exactly what we wound up doing 20 years later when um, everyone realized oh, oh no our buildings aren't really prepared to protect us from this novel pathogen SARS-CoV-2 and so we spent two years essentially recreating that wheel and then it's really had an effect on me that we had a chance 20 years ago to change how we were doing things and didn't, and now we're paying the, the price uh, really in spades. Yeah, you bet.
1: Uh, obviously, a lot more is known now about IAQ than it was back you know, so many years ago, and uh, I think the knowledge base will just continue to improve. During the COVID-19 era, Bill, what, what at Penn State, what did you specifically do to further protect you know the occupants the students and staff and yeah. the teachers so did you take certain measures back then yeah, you it, didn't it, have in place
0: it's been a really interesting experience of course i have my my research interests which largely have had to do with control of bioaerosols uv infiltration and other things but you know being a known expert on the, the staff i was consulted by our office physical plant when things started and i tried to give them uh, good practical advice about what to do. The the first thing being find out if the buildings we have are actually working. And I I don't know what the statistics uh, are uh, precisely, but it turns out that when uh, some entity as large as a university goes around and checks a few hundred buildings, they find a surprising number where things aren't working right because of deferred maintenance. So they tuned up the ventilation, uh, they changed out filters to uh, to MERV 13 to improve the clean air delivery rate. And in, in some uh, spaces, they put in portable air cleaners uh, as well. So, you know, I, I thought it was a, a pretty reasonable response. But what I'm interested in is what will the long term response be? Because um, probably along about 2022, I started hearing from people uh, can we can we put the MERV eight filters back in again, or do we still have to care about this? And you know, that's that really uh, worries me that that uh, we haven't learned from all of this. That we really just ought to be doing things better all the time forever.
1: You, you bet. I, I I can certainly appreciate that. Uh, do you have any plans, future plans, or maybe you have it in place now? IAQ monitoring in your campus buildings.
0: Well, you know, that's that's a huge. Uh, Issue. I, I think there's there's interest in it, but um, we have thousands and thousands of sensors that have to be maintained. and And, and the question yeah. I always pose in in my classes when I'm talking about instrumentation um, is, what are you going to do with that that data if you get it? Because it's not cheap to to get and it's not cheap to to store. So I'm I'm all in favor of um, of more continuous monitoring if we have a plan to actually use the data. And I think most facilities probably don't. I think as a step to that, at least going in and, and uh, retro commissioning buildings on a reasonable uh, kind of schedule so that we, we know at least periodically that they're doing what they're supposed to is is the, the first step in that
1: direction. You, you bet, I can appreciate that. Do you think that uh, maybe say five years from now, whatever the long-term so to speak, do you think IQ monitoring will be commonplace in buildings
0: uh, i think maybe you know, perhaps if we can recognize what the you know the the practical challenges are you know we, we always talk about uh, like to talk about uh, low-cost sensors A so low-cost is in the eye of the beholder and many of them like uh, pm instruments are are not particularly accurate i, I think um, you know we, we have to have reasonably accurate instrumentation available and i think we also have to uh, squeeze down the set of things that we need to measure to the absolute minimum. Uh, just exactly. measuring CO2 is not enough, but we can't measure 15 things um, like the ASHRAE indoor air quality procedure requires. Yeah. Right? Uh, maybe you do that once, but in an ongoing way, what do we look at? Uh, fine particulate matter, uh, carbon dioxide is an indicator of ventilation, uh, maybe formaldehyde Ozone, but it, it's it's got to be a handful or or less of things that are really the key ones that uh, create most of the risk and, and there's been some interesting research lately that has approached uh, indoor air pollution from the point of view of what causes the most harm what what yeah. generates the highest dolly uh, per uh, per person per year and then it actually it is a pretty small uh, group of things that that we ought to look at in most facilities
1: yeah and no, that you actually started to comment on what I was going to ultimately ask you. What, in your opinion, are say the top five most dangerous pollutants indoors, or the top three? You know, whatever, whatever a small number. Which, which? Well, you know, you just,
0: um, name them. The pollutants already PM two point five or refined particulate matter generally. You know, name the cut. It is really responsible for uh, the greatest damage. Uh, all of the the different uh, health effects that it can have, as well as as being the carrier of, of pathogens. so that's that's the the number one. Um, as a uh, uh, an aldehyde or a, a VOC, formaldehyde is probably um, the most significant of those because it's in so many building materials can be formed as a by byproduct. Um, ozone is is a very serious one, and we have an abundant source of ozone in outdoor air in many yep. places. So that's that's hard to. Uh, suppress also and in, in, in residential buildings um where you you may be finding indoor combustion people that have gas um, gas ranges or they have a uh, gas furnace perhaps um, no2 is is another one and then those are the you know, the, the main bad actors you, and then yeah. of course radon that we we, we had in some places regionally, but that's not a source you can remove. You just have to remediate
1: it. You bet. You, you being in Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken, I think fairly recently, uh, there was a number that I I think I came across that 40% of the homes in Pennsylvania uh, are believed to be impacted in some way by radon. Uh, right. what, what, can, what can you share with us about Penn State radon or and, you know, your home?
0: Oh, yeah. So, you know, if you, if you look at the um, EPA's Radon map and and knowing anything about where radon comes from in the ground, these shale formations uh, are are a big problem. And and the the, the hot uh, region kind of follows the mountains to the center of Pennsylvania, and we're sitting here in happy but uh, high radon level valley. And and so when I moved into my house about 30 years ago, we we had it tested, and it was exceeding what at the time was the, the EPA's. Action level and, and for a reasonable amount of money had a sub slab depressurization system put in that's still running just fine today. And I, in fact, I just did a, uh, uh, a test uh, a few weeks ago and, and we were only down there around three uh, picocuries per, per liter. So, you know, not bad. It's, it's hard to get much
1: lower than that in this part of the country. You bet. I can appreciate that. Um, there is an enormous amount, Bill, of Non-lethal carbon monoxide poisoning news all the time in the winter, and it's it's all over America. And I've talked recently with a fireman. I'm in Asheville, North Carolina, and I asked the fireman how often do they go out on carbon monoxide poisoning calls in the winter. He says one or more times a week. And if anybody does a little research about it, non-lethal carbon monoxide poisoning is apparently. Widespread and as i think most of us know there's millions of gas furnaces. Uh, so this gas, is for,
0: from from malfunctioning vented combustion equipment. Uh, supposedly yeah, vented combustion equipment.
1: Yeah, it's nothing simple about it. But I think yeah. I'd, I'd like to think the public knows that in general, carbon monoxide can be fatal. Do you, do you think uh, non lethal exposure to CO over the long term is harmful to human health? To, to kids, for example.
0: Yeah, well not not being a medical professional of course i i can't uh, professionally opine about that but you know something that uh, chronically affects your blood's ability to transport oxygen can't be good um, and and often children have more sensitivity to it so i wouldn't be surprised to to find that that uh, there is uh, toxicology on that uh, you know that's it, it needs to be taken very seriously um, and it's interesting that we kind of forget about this background exposure yeah. because what we hear about is, oh, someone, you know, had their their uh, heat shut off and then brought a, a kerosene uh, stove inside and, and uh, killed yeah. themselves. But uh, probably the total damage is, is higher from from a, a lot of, of chronic exposure than yeah. from
1: an occasional uh, and then very regrettable fatality. You bet. Uh, I, I don't know what to make of it. It's not simple. It's complicated. But as we both know, the public needs uh, educated uh, on all sorts of things that can be harmful. Regarding wildfire smoke, how did Penn State weather it this past summer? Uh, what 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 did you experience? And, and you got more 13s in there from COVID.
0: Right. So, um, you know, that, that was was tough. Uh, I was actually out of town. I can't remember where i was when, when the worst of it came through here and we had, had these uh, aqis that were you know up in the hundreds um but i had installed uh, uh hepa filter units portable hepa filter units in a lot of rooms in my house and i'd heard about the wildfire smoke in the news and i pulled up my my phone which has an interface on it to those filters and i'm 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 seeing like 60, 80 micrograms per cubic meter in in my in my house, um, but that's because I'd set all the fans at a fairly low speed before I left, and I cranked them all up, and within an hour I had the whole place below 10 again.
1: Fantastic. Um, okay. So
0: you know I think you know what that told me was that that if you have the ability to just uh, at least temporarily seal up your building, shut off the outdoor air, or at least put it to minimum, and you have good uh, filtration capacity combined with a lot of recirculation, that that's a way to get through these um, events. I, I don't think enough buildings have that, but I, I think that's you know, uh, something we ought to be doing. And I'm very anxious to, to have ASHRAE guideline 44 get finally published and and start to be used to uh, impact how we design buildings in the future. This whole topic of resilience, I think is one of the keys to what I'm working on right now. I've I've, uh, come to realize that all of our air quality standards, 62.1, 62.2, 170, and their equivalents around the world, really uh, tell us what we need to do under normal conditions. How do you get minimum acceptable air quality when everything's okay? And increasingly, we're having a lot of times when things aren't OK. We're having a, a novel infectious disease outbreak. We're having wildfire smoke. And so we really need to start uh, recognizing that there is a strong motivation to make buildings resilient from the IAQ point of view and to invest a little
1: bit in that. You bet. In the COVID-19 era, there was over 2,000 schools in something like 44 states, and a they- they bought air purifiers, and I'm sure you know, you recall what went on. And I, I look back. Uh, I don't know, and I certainly could be mistaken, that that there's not even one manufacturer that provides any after-the-fact data about you know what what was accomplished back then, and of course what continues to be accomplished. What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, one one of the types of tech that was sold to a significant degree was, degree was bipolar ionization. Any thoughts you want to share about bipolar ionization moving forward?
0: Yeah, well, you know, as the chair of uh, ASHRAE uh, SSPC241, I probably don't want to share too much about any specific technology, but I'd say that, you know, with the Epidemic Task Force, we we went through some uh, rough times with discussions about air cleaners with the manufacturers. Are you, why are you you against us and it all it all came down in the end to um, again things that we could have done years ago that we didn't do we don't have good test standards for air cleaners and so when we suddenly needed to have them we couldn't prove a that they were effective or b that they were safe and and so we we uh, limped through the worst of of COVID, but now that we've written standard 241 and, and others have have recognized this problem, I think there's there's a lot of productive work going on to develop standards that will allow us to determine whether these technologies are actually working or not, at least at the time of installation. How, how they actually work in terms of clinical um, effect, those are expensive studies, and I really hope that the government will, will uh, step in. And fund some big research projects to to uh, tell us whether these things are actually working or not, or how well they're working.
2: Uh, hi, hi, Bill. This is JB, producer here. I've been listening in and really, you know, just really intrigued by. Your your information so far, um, and appreciate everything that you do with Ashray in regards to creating these litmuses and benchmarks, etc. And I want to kind of ask you a follow up on 241 in particular because that was really big news last year, uh, coming out you know in the wake of uh, COVID and just general awareness of all types of infectious aerosols my question to you is this um, do you believe that uh, any state or federal government entity will enforce or mandate 241 anytime soon and and, and should they
0: um, well you know soon has to be interpreted in uh, in the sense of, of code cycles I mean that that's sort of a, a natural uh, barrier to rapid progress it's built in the system so a lot of uh, state laws or, or uh, model codes get updated on a three or four year cycle and and uh, i know that there are, are some uh, government entities that are interested but they're going to have to to wait to actually get things into law until until the next cycle comes around i i definitely think that a standard like this needs to be referenced in in law and in, in codes, um, because if we if we don't require that buildings new new buildings and renovations um, be designed to be more resilient to infectious disease risk, then we're going to be in the same situation the next time something comes around. I mean, one of the lessons of of, of the uh, the so-called COVID wars, if you've read that uh, very good book, is. If you're not ready when it starts, you're, you've already lost. So we have to overcome our natural inclination to say, whoa, we, just, we, we survived that, isn't that great? Let's get back to normal and say, what are we gonna do so it's better the next time? Um, but I, I think it's a process. And interestingly, I've got a meeting this afternoon with the California uh, interagency uh, working group on indoor air quality, and guess what we're talking about? Uh, about two forty one and an adoption of two forty one. and and uh, they also wanted me to chat with them about what do you see as path to adoption. and 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 really, I think you have to view it as a um, a process. Um, yeah. You can't simply expect that it's going to happen because you wrote it. So um, it, it's part uh, persuasion and part process. You have to know the process to get things through the legal system, state by state or at the federal level. But a lot of it that I've come to learn during the pandemic has to do with building support for things. I think uh, right now we're in a situation where we have a lot of public support for doing something, uh, especially strong among, say, uh, school parents. Uh, And and this is the time to to uh, get things rolling and and not only um, resilience, wildfires and and um, infectious diseases. What we have to do is hitch that. To the the other uh, need, which is just better indoor air quality generally, and I think if we put all of that together, we can start changing the standards that are already in place, the 62.1 okay. and 62.2, and the codes that reference them. So I, I kind of have a, a vision of how this this could work, but it's going to take some time to play out. You know, on the other side, we're we're talking with the big government entities, federal level, uh, GSA and and, and others who are landlords that may be willing to pilot and uh, um, help improve standards. And I think that's another piece of it. We've put the standard out here, it's, it's the first version. Obviously there are things we could do better, we could make it uh, um, more robust. And, and so I think that if we keep working on it and recognize that, that this is a process and not something where we, we wrote it and we're done, then I think we'll, we'll get there in a reasonable amount of time.
1: Bill, there's, a, there's an unprecedented amount of outdoor environmental news published in the mainstream news cycle. I'm sure you're aware of this, but it's, it's literally every day, typically starts with climate change and, you know, the decarbonization and the heat pumps and so on and so forth. But essentially, the indoor environmental news does, literally doesn't exist in the mainstream news media, but there's an enormous amount of it. And that's what I track. And so a hundred different ways I tra- look for IAQ-related news. And of course, as you know, it's tied to the outdoor environment, what's going on, the wildfire smoke, uh, you know, the indoor. I mean, there is a really, really broad landscape. Uh, one of the things we want to do with the indoor air is, is draw more attention to the indoor environment. And you certainly know best because most of us spend most of the time indoors. It's not outdoors. Which leads me to this in I think it was October uh, or maybe it was September that the Biden administration announced they want 20 million heat pumps. Installed by the end of I think it's 2030 Uh, and then from there millions more at Penn State. Do you have plans future plans for heat pump tech and, and to remove all your if in fact you have gas furnaces and so on and so forth there.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not aware of that yet. Although Penn State has been um, very ambitious with its uh, sustainability plans and its decarb plans, so we, we a few years ago we went from coal to natural gas, took advantage of the low cost at the time natural gas, and and so so now we've got no more coal. Um, the university has been installing a lot of, of uh, sustainable or renewable energy. So we have have several big uh, P v farms you know to me that's you know, the issue is is that that uh, until we have clean energy to run them, putting in heat pumps may not be the the absolute best thing we could do with our money i I, I think that uh, uh, operational carbon um, that's most easily affected by energy efficiency measures continues to be the best place to focus today. And, and you can see that there's this a fair amount of pushback from some quarters that why are we gonna spend all this money on, uh, on heat pumps? And, and I, I have to somewhat agree with it that, that the uh, electrification of buildings may have pushed out in, in front of cleaning up the electric supply a little bit too much. If you take all the money for heat pumps and, and take carbon out of power production um, I, I wonder if we wouldn't do better. Yeah, I'm not saying that the heat pumps aren't good. I, I I support them. But if you you think you're, you're you're really making a big impact by converting your house to a, a heat pump when you're using uh, fossil fuel produced electricity, um, you'd be surprised if you did the math.
2: Hey, hey, Bill. I, I, real quick, um, I I have a question, kind of a follow up to my previous question on 241 and in, in governmental mm-hmm. role in implementing, um, code over time. Um, but I'm listening to you kind of reconstruct your own experiences, not only at the university, but historically through different, um, air quality issues. And my question, I want to shift the question over to industry in your experience and, or in your opinion, do you see, uh, an increase in industry, uh, acknowledging, accepting, or in working with uh, organizations like Ashray, uh, are they are they moving faster to try and show uh, uh, progress or new technology to meet these needs, or is it more resistant given scale, mass, you know, uh, institutional oh, no. habits historically? Where is industry? in the middle of newfound knowledge, newfound standards, uh, that you guys, you and your team are working on.
0: Now, when you say industry, do you mean manufacturers? Or are you talking yes. about, yeah. So, you know, I, I think that uh, the response of a lot of the major manufacturers has been pretty positive in the last few years. Um, when they've been um, told that, uh, uh, Carbon is a big problem. They've gotten into to decarbon in a, a big way, and I think they also responded uh, on indoor air quality at least uh, for a while in an encouraging way during COVID. But of course, they're they are businesses, and and what they're looking for is is uh, markets. So I, I don't um, fault them at all for for taking a hard look at indoor air quality and trying to decide, is there really a long-term market here? Is all of this interest that's been whipped up during the pandemic going to um, justify the investment in it? And and this is why at the end of the day, I've I've gone from you know, being the academic who wants to be uh, figuring out the, the, the really uh, cool new thing to being more policy-focused. And how do we raise the the, the minimum bar because the one thing I've learned in a 40 year career is that most owners will do what they have to do. Yeah, sure. and, and there's nothing wrong with that. you know s- Someone responsible should be setting standards where they ought to be. And so I, I think right now we, we have a, a two big problems in, in the US and maybe in most countries in the world. The first is we have no national standard for indoor air quality. The Clean Air Act doesn't cover indoor air quality. We don't have a national model indoor air quality code, and we don't have, that's one thing. And the other is we don't have operational uh, regulations for buildings. We have uh, some stuff about ventilation in the design code. And so the building's delivered, but then what happens to it after that, there's, there's no regulation of it. So I think we ought to be pushing for for both uh, the higher baseline in terms of how buildings are designed, and it ought to be a requirement that their uh, performance be verified, if not continuously, at least uh, periodically in, in a reasonable way. And I think that will accomplish more than uh, any novel technology I've seen that's come down the the, the pike in, in a long time.
1: That, that's well put. I, I, I have a tendency to think that I think in the long term, whatever that is, I think I think building owners and operators are going to feel the demand by the public, but they don't want to go into buildings that aren't, you know, healthy, so to speak. And right. uh, you know, the term "sick building syndrome" has been around, you know, whatever number of decades.
0: Seventies, eighties, yeah. Yeah,
1: and the number I always heard that the estimate was uh, that one out of four buildings are estimated to be sick. You know, it seems like the the marketing could be of have more benefit if it was rebranded. Uh, for instance, I look at climate change marketing, and pollution is what sickens, kills, and plays a leading role with climate change. Yeah. And I think the public will get on board if the focus is on pollution, uh, both outdoors and indoors, and, and help create public demand. In 1970, I think it was 1972, the Clean Water Act was in, enacted. But that was preceded in 1948 by the Federal Water Pollution Control Act. And back then, the public didn't know anything about water pollution. And it literally took over 20 years for the public to demand a lot more be done about water pollution. And so the Federal Water Pollution Control Act was significantly expanded, amended. If you think there'll come a day where, the, where there will be a safe, indoor air quality act?
0: Well, I'm what I'm hoping is um, that, that the Clean Air Act will be extended to indoor air quality. I'm, I'm currently on the Clean Air Act Advisory Committee, and uh, I'd, I'd recommend to anyone listening that uh, you go to the EPA website and find the 50th anniversary report uh, that was written by the Clean Air Act Advisory Committee on the Clean Air Act. And the last section of that is a really interesting uh, discussion of indoor air quality and why it should be um, something that is, is covered in the Clean Air Act. Um, starting with the, the fact that uh, we estimate that based on what the Clean Air Act has done outdoors, there was a 30 to one ROI. Um, and, and to your point, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. We shouldn't be telling people you need to ventilate more. We need to focus on you're being exposed to this, that, and the other and these are yeah. the effects they have on you and quantifying that and that that may make it a little more real than uh, just saying i need more outdoor air especially when the outdoor yeah. air that clean
1: yeah i i agree with you 110 percent you know i'm a marketing person i'm not a technical expert like you but i when i look at marketing whether it's the outdoor environment or indoors pollution is not front and center of the marketing message uh, it's just, you know, it's kind of on the sidelines, so to speak. But my thinking is, is the public will respond and with time demand that a lot more be done. Uh, that's just, uh, you know, a personal take on it. Yeah.
0: You know, I, you pick pick any public interest law that's been passed. I don't think that uh, there was a lot of love for the Clean Air Act amongst those who had to comply with it when it was, was first issued. And, and OSHA, it was the same thing, you know, I'd hear. People complaining about uh, labels on their ladders and all this other stuff. But you know, you travel outside the U.S. and you know, just to try to walk in and out of a building, and then you find you got ramps and railings. And if you look at the cumulative effect of these things, they've really been um, very good. And we just need to get over the hump and agree that indoors matters too, because that's where most of our exposures occur. You, you bet. And,
1: and come, you know, regarding the indoor environment, maybe the two most vulnerable types of buildings are. Where the students are children in schools, yep. And how about nursing homes? What are your thoughts about elder care? It's, it's a growth industry. The population is aging. Uh, if those aren't two of the most vulnerable segments of the population to IAQ, I'm not sure what else would be. Maybe it's a hotel. Uh, home.
0: I don't want to say <laughs> things that are too negative about that industry, but uh, you know, we we have more and more um, elders who get put into facilities that, that, that really uh, all around are not very nice. And and we found out during uh, the early days of, of COVID that, that uh, from an air quality point of view, those nursing homes were just uh, death traps, uh, yeah. some of the, the highest mortality. So yeah, we, we need to focus on, on that population and they're one that really needs protecting.
1: Yeah, I, absolutely. I think it was uh, the end of October, on CBS 60 Minutes, Joe Allen was on. Did you happen to watch him talk about... Uh, Yeah, I've
0: seen seen that segment, yes.
1: Okay, any thoughts uh, you'd like to share? I I thought he did a great job. Obviously, there's not enough time to talk about IQ, but uh, CBS 60 Minutes has a big reach.
0: Well, you know, he and and Lindsey Marr have been, uh, you know, very good about uh, getting messages out during the the pandemic, and then that's the kind of thing that Joe does, and I thought that he uh, encapsulated for the public a lot of the... uh, issues and I, I hope that uh they, they have an effect you know i think the more we talk about it the yeah. the more likely it is uh, that we'll we'll do something you, know, you said you're you're a marketing person i'm an engineer another thing i've learned in my career is if, if you can't sell you haven't really got a job <laughs> I, I came to the university and and because i didn't really want to work in a business and have to go out and sell stuff well what do they tell yeah. you we'd like you to bring in x dollars and external yeah. funding per year so you know everybody has to yeah. has to market at if, some I'm not, if
1: i'm not mistaken sometime last year i think ashray had a webinar regarding soft skills uh if i'm not mistaken soft skills are, are critical to anybody with in-depth technical expertise they don't you know many people don't get it the importance uh, do you recall that topic
0: well and i mean we, it, we've talked about soft skills for a long time and those have actually become kind of popular topics. I think Corinne LeBlanc is on your uh, your list Definitely. here, and uh, she's uh, an emotional intelligence person. That, that stuff's important. I suppose if you look back at people who are successful, you find out that one way or another, they developed good soft skills, and, and a lot of those who are, are in the back room grinding things out didn't. So I think it, it is important, but whether you can can learn it, I don't know, or to, to what extent. A lot of that seems to be... Uh, Nature as well as nurture.
2: Bill, I, JB here again. I'm just kind of listening to the two of you. <clears throat> excuse me. And one thing that really jumped out to me is Gary, I think you talked about um, the role that language or branding plays in selling a message and/or tanking a message. So, Bill, let me ask you this. I, I would be remiss to not bring this up, but in the landscape that we're in politically, how, how has that come into play in Ashray or your own steps in, because the language at the federal level in particular, the national level politics in, you know, uh, global warming, well, climate is always changing versus, you know, the, the scientific side. Are, are you seeing and or feeling kind of unprecedented stresses? Due to the national narrative from a political standpoint, as it applies to the work that you guys are doing, in in trying to forward uh, the the science and, and standards and minimums uh, to help indoor air quality.
0: Well, um, to to go back to where you you started, I I think climate change uh, has always been a problem because there's been um, ongoing doubt that even if it's happening uh, we can do something about it so there, you know, there's there's the oh nothing's wrong this is normal or or this isn't good but but we can't do anything about it um accounts for a lot of public opinion I, i'm not so sure that uh, that that's the issue for indoor environmental quality, but we do need more investment in showing and um, quantifying what the effects are. You know, the the answer the antidote to a lot of these questions is is uh, do a a good economic analysis and show what it really costs. Yeah. And and then maybe you get people's attention independently of politics. So I'm I'm very strongly in, in favor of of trying to. Put dollars on, on these things. Because also solving some of these problems, once you've identified it as a national problem and shown what the magnitude of it is, usually the solution is comes down to something where there's a significant split incentive. So you've got to move money from one place to another to get it done. Uh, those who benefit are not necessarily those who pay. And so you know, we, we've talked about several different you know, things that are on the soft side. I think the other thing that's really important is behavioral economics. I think uh, anyone who's concerned about these uh, issues needs to, to read some of the, the great behavioral economists and, and, and see how the way you frame a, a problem and think about it affects what the solution is going to be, Kahneman and uh, the others.
1: You bet. And to get the public on board and to take a closer look at all the information that's available, my, my personal thought is that it's the pollution stupid, and I don't mean anybody, you know, you, me, or anybody else, but it has to be about pollution front and center. The public does not want more pollution, they want less, and I think that's the way in the long term to get the public more on board with creating a much wider spread demand to do
0: something. Yeah, but pollution and loss. I mean, this is one of the fundamental points of behavioral economics is that yeah. that someone will invest a lot more to avoid harm than they will to receive a benefit by, by two to one. So we shouldn't be talking about, um, we'll make you healthier, you will make your yeah. life better. I would say, you know, right now by not doing anything, you are incurring this much harm on an ongoing basis. How, how long do you want to, you know, Make that trade-off. Or are you going to do something to, to to fix the problem? That, that, I think that's really all there is to it.
1: That's well put. Hey, Bill, we're running short on time. Where can people find you on social media? You're on LinkedIn, of course.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm on LinkedIn and and Facebook. I don't uh, really have a a blog or a, a web page or not. But I'm also easy to to find through my uh, my Penn State email if someone really has a specific question the, mostly i post these days on linkedin is i got tired of twitter i do have a twitter account too but i i tend to not go there very often anymore i
2: right. I, I can't understand why
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I it off my list so to speak X'd yeah. it. you
2: xed <laughs> it off i like that well yeah. well played
1: bill bill thank you so much for your time today and mm-hmm. sure would like to have you on uh the indoor pod maybe a later date in time uh to share what's the latest with Ashray and at Penn State.
0: Absolutely, happy to, to come back. It was uh, a, a real pleasure, thanks very much.
1: All right, thank you, Bill.
2: Thank you for listening to the Indoor AirPod, produced by Gaslight STL, your podcast partner. Be sure to give our show a follow to keep up with upcoming guests and topics. And please reach out with any questions or guest suggestions.